Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we talked about the plague that struck Europe in the middle of the 14th century. It reached Scandinavia in 1349, and in six months or so, it caused the death of roughly half the Scandinavian population. This time, we'll talk about one of the few corners of Scandinavian civilization that wasn't affected by the plague, namely Greenland. It may sound great to have avoided the lethal calamity, but embedded in the reasons for escaping the disease lies one of the seeds to the end of Scandinavian life on the island, namely its remote location. Episode 54, Abandoning Greenland. As I'm sure you learned in geography class, Greenland is the largest island in the world, not considered a continent. But despite its impressive size, a very small part of it is actually inhabitable. And the part that is inhabitable is arguably so only in the technical sense of the word. The problem is, of course, the climate. It's cold. Very cold. Greenland has the second largest ice mass on the planet after Antarctica. Last time we talked about Greenland in any detail was all the way back in episode 12, The Final Frontier, where we followed the life and career of Eric the Red, who was outlawed in Iceland for killing some people, and who then set out to discover, or at least settle, a mysterious island to the west of Iceland. When his time as an outlaw was over, Eric returned to Iceland and convinced some people to join him in settling this new place that he had named Greenland to make it sound more alluring than Iceland. We can only guess what the new settlers thought to themselves after they had made the 1,500-kilometer sea voyage with Eric the Red from Iceland to Greenland, only to realize that green was far from the dominant color of their new home. But no matter how disappointed they may have been, they didn't abandon the idea and return to Iceland, possibly because they were grateful they'd survived the trip in the first place. Of the ships that set out on the original colonization voyage, only 14, or about half, made it. The rest were lost at sea. So the risk of sailing to and from Greenland was lost on absolutely no one. So basically, stuck on this far from verdant island, the settlers that had arrived with Eric the Red set up shop in the southwest corner of Greenland, where they found two fjord systems that cut deep enough inland far enough away from the icebergs, the cold currents, the wind and the salt spray for the newcomers to actually find some green patches where they realized that they could find food for their livestock and land that was arable, at least in good years. Eric the Red established his farm at Brattalid in one of these fjord systems at a place that later became known as the Eastern Settlement, sometime in the 980s. This was the richer and more prosperous of the Scandinavian settlements on the island. And obviously, it was only rich and prosperous relative to the second settlement established by Scandinavians in Greenland. That second settlement was founded a bit further north up the western coast of the island, and it was called the Western Settlement. Both settlements were located just south of the Arctic Circle. The weather may not have been particularly pleasant, with summer temperatures rarely climbing above 10 degrees Celsius, but the Scandinavians in Greenland got on surprisingly well all the same. 
they improved their meager soil, making sure that they could sow crops and have cows that provided them with dairy products and meat. But bread and beef were just a sideshow, a bonus. The Greenlanders made their living off fishing and hunting, and the hunting was actually quite lucrative. The Scandinavians in Greenland hunted walruses, seals and narwhals, and made good money from selling furs, skins and tusks. The selling of walrus tusks was especially good business. When elephant tusks were still very rare and extremely difficult to come by in Europe, walrus tusks were the main source of ivory, and the Greenlanders had a virtual monopoly on this particular commodity. They sold these tusks for a considerable profit, and they also paid their taxes to the King of Norway in walrus tusks. Every six years, they would send off a shipload of walrus tusks as their payment of tax to the king. One ship with tusks from some 260 walruses was worth more than all the woolen cloth sent from the approximately 4,000 farms in Iceland. The shipment had the same value as 800 cows. As I mentioned, they also sold narwhal tusks. These were marketed to gullible European nobles and princes as unicorn horns, and wealthy aristos paid a lot of money for these horns that they believed had healing or even magical properties. The king of Denmark, Frederick III, even had a coronation chair made out of these narwhal tusks, believing them to be unicorn horns. The chair is no longer used since Danish monarchs no longer have coronation ceremonies, but you can still go and gawk at the chair at the Rosenborg Castle in Copenhagen. And what did the Greenlanders do with the money that they got from selling all these tusks? Well, basically the same as any other medieval Scandinavian with discretionary income. They spent it on fancy clothes of the latest fashion, books in both Latin and Old Norse, and construction work. Some of the buildings that archaeologists have found, especially in the eastern settlement, are quite impressive, not least the Cathedral of Greenland, a stone edifice complete with stained glass window and all the other trappings you'd expect to find in an important church from that time. So, despite the inhospitable climate and the isolated location, the Scandinavian settlements on Greenland thrived and endured for centuries. Until they didn't any longer. At some point in the 14th or early 15th century, the Scandinavians disappeared from Greenland. As strange as it may sound, the disappearance of these settlements is shrouded in mystery. We don't know what happened to these Scandinavian Greenlanders and how their civilization ended. There are a number of theories, though. The people who lived in the Scandinavian settlements in Greenland were in touch with Iceland and Norway, primarily via their trade connections, but there was also some other traffic. Still, there's no denying that they were living far away. It's 1,500 kilometers between Greenland and Iceland, and then roughly the same distance from Iceland to Norway. And the sea lanes weren't open all year round. Ships could only sail to Greenland during a brief window of time in the summer months. And, as we've seen, even then the journey wasn't without its risks. The North Atlantic is frequently whipped by storms, and powerful currents from the Arctic Ocean bring down drift ice along the eastern coast of Iceland. At the tip of the island, the current turns west, enveloping the island and forcing ships to sail through what amounts to a minefield of icebergs in order to reach the Scandinavian settlements on the southwestern shores of Greenland. 
that I was a very real danger of not surviving that journey, and plenty of ships sank on the way to or from Greenland, even in summer. And this wasn't just a problem for Viking Age or medieval ships either, as the fate of RMS Titanic would later show. Because of this very real danger, people back in Norway didn't think too much about it when they didn't hear from the Greenlanders for a few years. But in the middle of the 14th century, just a few years before the plague struck his kingdom, King Magnus Eriksson realized that his subjects in Greenland's western settlement hadn't paid their taxes for years. When they checked, the royal bureaucrats saw that they hadn't actually received any walrus tusks from the western settlement since 1327. And that wasn't like them. Usually they would pay their taxes, more or less on time. They had never been this late before. The king was concerned, perhaps primarily about his lost tax revenue, but it can't be ruled out that he also worried about the fate of the Greenlanders. In any case, he decided to send someone to check up on them. So in 1341, a guy called Ivar Bartarsson was sent to Greenland to see what was going on and to report back to the king. Ivar managed to cross the ocean and reached the eastern settlement. There, he asked about the western settlement, but no one had anything of substance to relate that could shed light on why they hadn't paid any taxes for more than a decade. Actually, no one from the eastern settlement had visited their more remote neighbors for years, and no one had come from there either. So Ivar continued on his fact-finding mission, and when he finally reached the tax-evading western settlement, he discovered that it had been abandoned. He didn't encounter any people at all, but there were some cattle and sheep milling about in the empty houses. Ivar and his crew assumed this meant that the settlement had been abandoned fairly recently, since they couldn't believe that any cows or sheep would survive the harsh Greenland winters without being tended to by humans. So they slaughtered the animals and took as much meat as they could carry with them back to the eastern settlement. Ivar now had his answer as to why the king hadn't received any taxes from the western settlement. It didn't exist any longer. To Ivar, the explanation to what had happened was clear as day. He blamed the so-called Skrælings, that is, the local Native Americans. In this case, the proto-Inuit Thule people, who lived further north. Ivar assumed that they had attacked the western settlement and either killed the population or taken it captive. But there were no signs of any battle at the site, no dead bodies, and the houses hadn't been pillaged or burnt down. The frustrating truth is that we still don't know exactly what had happened at the Western Settlement, which led to its demise. Even though the more remote, poorer Western Settlement was now gone, the Eastern Settlement was still going strong. Or perhaps not all that strong, but it was still muddling along, and it would do so for another generation or two. But the signs of the approaching end were there. The regular connection between Greenland and Norway ended in the late 1360s, when the ship that was used for these journeys sank and wasn't replaced by the Norwegians. The last bishop of Greenland died in 1378, and he was never replaced. Then the plague finally managed to reach Iceland in 1402, and when roughly half the island's population perished, keeping up the connection to Greenland was far down the list of priorities for the survivors. 
The last written record we have from the Scandinavians living in the eastern settlement is a note about a marriage taking place in the Kvalsey church in 1408 between Sigrid Björnsdottir and Thorstein Olafsson. But the newlyweds didn't stay long in Greenland, and instead they soon departed for Iceland, where Thorstein was from. After that marriage in 1408, the sources from Greenland fell silent. We don't know for how long Scandinavians still survived there, but archaeologists who have excavated the ruins of the eastern settlement estimate that by 1435, at the very latest, it too had been abandoned. These archaeological excavations have painted a gloomy picture of the last years of life in the eastern settlement. The lingering inhabitants clearly suffered from the severed links with Iceland. For instance, toward the end they could no longer restock their supply of everyday tools. Knives had been found that were used until they were worn down to little more than stubs, since there was no iron to be found on the island and none was brought in from the outside world once the last ship had sailed. Analysis of the skeletons show that the last generation of Greenlanders had suffered from malnutrition that had stunted their growth, and among the bones found in the refuse piles are not only the expected remains of cattle and sheep, but also dog bones. You can only imagine how hungry the Greenlanders must have been in order to butcher and eat their dogs not only because of the cultural and religious taboo against eating canines, but also because these dogs weren't just pets, they were hunting dogs, used when hunting for caribou and other animals. Eventually, the Greenlanders ran out of food altogether, and in some of the ruins of the eastern settlement, archaeologists have found remains of flies that live on carcasses, indicating that the last inhabitants died alone in their houses, with no one left to bury them. So what happened? How come that these settlements that had thrived for hundreds of years were wiped out within a few generations? First, let's have a look at Ivar Bardarsson's theory that the Skrælings were to blame for the demise of the Greenland Scandinavians. Who were these Skrælings? They're known today as the Thule people after the site in northern Greenland where archaeologists first encountered remains from their culture. They're also sometimes called Proto-Inuits because linguistically, culturally and genetically they were the forerunners of modern Inuits who live in the region today. Just like the Scandinavians, the Thule people were relative newcomers to Greenland. They'd migrated there from Alaska across what's today northern Canada and they reached Greenland sometime in the 13th century. On their way east, they replaced another indigenous North American people, the so-called Dorset people, who'd lived in modern-day northern Canada and northern Greenland in the previous centuries. We don't know exactly what happened to cause the disappearance of the Dorset people, if the Thule people were responsible, or if their appearance at the same time was a mere coincidence. In any case, This isn't the History of the Arctic Peoples podcast, so I'm not going to speculate any further about that. Whatever had happened along the way, the Thule Proto-Inuit people, whom I'm just going to call Inuits from now on for the sake of simplicity, and the Scandinavians made contact at the end of the 13th century. The Scandinavians often went on hunting trips, traveling north along Greenland's west coast in the summer, 
and on such trips they started to encounter Inuits, who were migrating southward. By the 14th century, the Inuit migration had reached so far south that they even inhabited the same fjords as the Scandinavians in some places, but they didn't live together, but instead kept to opposing shores of the fjords. The Inuits and the Scandinavians didn't immediately click or become BFFs, but archaeologists have found items of Scandinavian origin in Inuit sites far north of any place where Scandinavians are thought to have ventured, so there might at least have been some trading contacts between the two groups. There are also supposed to be some words in the Inuit language that linguists have concluded are of Old Norse origin, indicating connections between the two groups. We also know that there were other, more violent, interactions. From the sagas, we know that it took the Scandinavians only a few minutes to attack and kill some of the first Native Americans they encountered in Vinland, and it doesn't seem too out of character for them to act similarly when meeting Inuits in Greenland. But the Inuits weren't pacifists either, and they could give just as good as they got. They were skilled hunters and had good bows, and as well as armor of sorts made from walrus. In 1379, when Scandinavian Greenland was already waning and the western settlement had already been abandoned, Inuits even attacked the eastern settlement directly. The attackers killed 18 men and captured two children and a woman before they withdrew north again. So even though there may have been some limited trading and other interactions between Inuits and Scandinavians, they didn't establish any general cordial ties. We don't know why that is, but we do know that it was to the detriment of the Scandinavian Greenlanders. Their settlements were failing, and even though the Inuits may not have been the reason for the end of Scandinavian life in Greenland, they didn't feel compelled to help their Scandinavian neighbours to survive either. By contrast, the Inuits themselves did survive and remained in Greenland. How come their civilization persevered when the Scandinavians didn't? One possible explanation, Ivar Bartarsson's explanation, is that the Inuits were the cause of the collapse of Scandinavian society in Greenland. Another explanation is that they were simply better suited to life in this inhospitable part of the world, and when it became even more inhospitable, the Inuits survived when the Scandinavians just couldn't cope anymore. You see, as cold and miserable as Greenland had been when Eric the Red tricked that first group of settlers to make the journey from Iceland, it would grow even colder and more miserable. The initial settlement actually took place during one of the warmer periods in Greenland's history, and even though it never was balmy, it had been just about warm enough to support a lifestyle that Scandinavians were accustomed to from Iceland and Norway. There was less drift ice in the waters off Greenland, and the longer summers meant that cows, goats and sheep could graze outside for a longer time, so they needed less hay indoors. These warm-er years even made it possible to grow crops in secluded spots in southern Greenland. But in the late 13th century, the climate cooled off and the so-called Little Ice Age set in. In the beginning of the 14th century, the temperature dropped significantly, leading to maximum temperatures that were 6 to 8 degrees Celsius lower than today, which meant that the temperature barely rose above freezing, even at the height of summer. The sea ice expanded, and the amount of drift ice increased, narrowing the window of time it was possible to pass in or out of Greenland ports. 
The salt spray from the storms on the Atlantic spread salt over the soil, ruining it. Not that it mattered that much, since the ground hardly had time to thaw, meaning that it was permanently frozen, making it impossible to grow anything, salt spray or no salt spray. The Little Ice Age affected not only Greenland. The lowest winter temperatures in the last 2,000 years occurred in Europe in the late 14th and early 15th centuries. But whereas the people in the rest of Europe had the margins to survive these years of cold and miserable weather, it may have been too much for the Scandinavians in Greenland. When it grew colder, the Scandinavian lifestyle, always marginal in Greenland, became intenable. The Scandinavians were faced with a stark choice. Adapt to the new conditions or perish. And here we get to another possible explanation for the demise of the Scandinavian society in Greenland. Some scholars, perhaps keen to paint the Scandinavian settlers as foreign to Greenland and drawing parallels to imperialist colonial projects in later centuries, like to stress how the Scandinavians failed to make friends with the Inuits and how, despite living in Greenland for hundreds of years, they didn't adapt their lifestyle to the local climate and how they stuck to that Scandinavian lifestyle even when the climate changed and the natural conditions made it unsustainable to go on as they had before. There is some merit to this argument. Just like in Iceland, the Scandinavians who settled in Greenland cut down the few trees that grew there and left the island completely deforested within a few years of their arrival. Archaeologists have also found clothes worn by the Scandinavian inhabitants. These garments, well preserved in the eternal Greenland ice, were made of wool and conformed to medieval European fashion with hooded capes. Apparently, the Scandinavians didn't adopt the Inuit habit of making clothes from sealskins and furs, materials that protect better from the cold and which have the added bonus of you not having to waste resources to feed and tend to sheep for years before you can use their wool. But at the same time, you can also overstate the argument about the dumb Scandinavians who refused to adapt and paid for their stubbornness with their lives. For instance, archaeologists haven't found any traces of fish bones in the Scandinavian settlements, and this has been interpreted by some to mean that they didn't consume fish, but stuck to meat and crop diets only. Perhaps for ideological reasons, looking down at fish eating as an Inuit habit. But that strikes me as taking it too far. First of all, because Scandinavians have never been strangers to eating fish. It's been the main source of protein for generations throughout history in many places in Scandinavia, not least Norway and Iceland. Secondly, eating fish was very much a part of the culture of Roman Catholic Europe that the Greenlanders were a part of. During Lent and on fast days, including every single Friday, you weren't supposed to eat meat, and instead people would eat fish. So even if the Scandinavians in Greenland thought their European culture was superior to that of the Inuits, and I'm willing to guess that they did think so, eating fish was mandatory in their supposedly superior culture. And if my wishy-washy arguments based on presumptions of cultural habits don't convince you, then analysis of bones from Greenland Scandinavians have shown that they did eat fish. In fact, their consumption of fish and even seals increased toward the end of the 14th century at the time when the drop in temperatures made it increasingly difficult to grow crops and to keep your cows and sheep alive. Towards the end, 
Some 80% of their food came from the sea, if the bone analysis is to be trusted, and I see no reason not to. So it seems the lack of fish bones can't be explained with the Scandinavians being arrogant and stubborn, refusing to adapt Inuit eating habits. Maybe the fish bones simply have disintegrated over the centuries, and that's the reason no trace of them can be found by modern-day archaeologists. Who knows? On the other hand, the fact that they did eat fish and seals doesn't mean that the Scandinavians weren't stubborn and weren't loath to adopting Inuit lifestyles. For instance, even after they'd cut down the last trees of Greenland, they didn't take after the Inuit habit of burning seal blubber, something that could have kept them warm and made it easier to cook whatever meager food they still had. So there's no doubt that the cooling temperatures made life in Greenland increasingly difficult for the Scandinavians. And it didn't help that they were reticent about adopting Inuit habits, and only did so in a few cases to try and cope with the changing climate. But with that said, even as temperatures dropped, the Scandinavian settlements in Greenland survived as long as they were in somewhat regular contact with Iceland and Norway. The ships bringing supplies across the Atlantic were a lifeline that enabled continued existence in an increasingly freezing Greenland. Unfortunately for the Greenlanders, the interest to keep up that lifeline started to cool off at the other end. When Iceland was forced to yield to the King of Norway, Greenland was also made part of his domains. And if Greenland had been far away from the Icelandic horizon, it was even further off for the Norwegians. Then, in 1349, the plague hit Norway. I'm sure you all remember from last time that this was a catastrophic event in the history of Scandinavia, and not least in Norway, which suffered a dramatic drop in its population. Like Iceland, Greenland wasn't struck directly by the Black Death in the mid-14th century. The disease never made it across the Atlantic. But that doesn't mean that the Greenlanders weren't affected by it. One of the many dire consequences of the plague was that Norway temporarily lost its grip over Greenland. This inability to reach across the Atlantic threatened continued Scandinavian life on the island. Luckily, that all-important lifeline was eventually restored, but it would be weaker from now on. Bergen, on the west coast of Norway, was the one port from which ships sailed to Iceland and Greenland, and as the city recovered from the plague, its capacity was reduced. The remaining ships and crews didn't necessarily prioritize the hazardous journey across the ice-cold and stormy North Atlantic all the way to Greenland. As a result, the Scandinavians in Greenland had to get used to going for long periods of time, years between every contact with the outside world. To be blunt, the King of Norway was principally interested in Greenland as a source of walrus and narwhal tusks. But the value of the tusks was dropping because Portugal and Spain were opening new trade routes to sub-Saharan markets, bringing higher quality elephant tusks to Europe, tusks that were of superior quality to walrus tusks. Recent scholarship has tended to stress the economic aspect of the collapse of the Scandinavian society in Greenland. When the economic raison d'etre was weakened, or even disappeared, Scandinavian Greenland wasn't long for this world. The decreased economic benefit of Greenland definitely led to neglect, a clear indication of how far down the Norwegian list of priorities the island had dropped 
was the fact that, as I mentioned before, when the Bishop of Greenland died in 1378, no replacement was sent. From now on, the Greenlanders just had to cope without a bishop. The already frail link between Norway and Greenland suffered a definite blow in 1393, when the city of Bergen was attacked and pillaged by a band of pirates called the Victual Brothers. They burned the city to the ground, cutting Norway off from its North Atlantic possessions, including Greenland. But unlike all those other islands like Iceland, Greenland couldn't cope alone. By now, the Greenlanders were dependent on grain deliveries and other supplies from Norway. So maybe the last Greenland Scandinavians were abandoned to starve and freeze to death, with no way to escape to Iceland because they no longer had the material, and perhaps even the know-how, to build new ships of their own. No matter how dramatic or tragic the last days of the Scandinavian society in Greenland were, the decline had been gradual. Scholars estimate that there were never more than approximately 2,500 Scandinavians living in Greenland, but by the end of the 14th century, their number was much lower, and had been decreasing for a long time. Many had left over the years, especially the young generations, like Sigrid Björnstotter and Thorstein Olavsson, that last couple who got married in the Kvalsay church in 1408. The newest graves that archaeologists have found almost all contain elderly people, those who chose to stay in the place where they had been born and raised, and who perhaps felt that they were too old to start from scratch in some new and unknown place. This makes sense, and is a phenomenon we recognize from most other emigrant communities as well. The young leave and the old remain. This pattern also indicates that there was never a mass exodus of Scandinavians from Greenland, no collective decision to evacuate the island, no flood of refugees, but a steady trickle of emigrants. The fact that no Icelandic source mentions the abandonment of Greenland also supports this conclusion. If a fleet of ships filled to the brim with the harried people who had abandoned their homes and farms in Greenland in one fell swoop, I think we could count on illiterate people like the Icelanders to mention it in some written source. But however gradual the process, it still ended with the collapse of Scandinavian society in Greenland. We still don't know why it happened, and maybe we never will. But as you've heard today, there are several theories. Inuit aggression, a cooling climate, or economic irrelevance. Perhaps the truth is a combination of two or more of these explanations, or perhaps there was something else entirely that we haven't discovered yet. Polar bears with laser beam eyes spring to mind. Whatever the reason or reasons for the collapse, by the early 15th century, there were no longer any Scandinavians living in Greenland. The last survivors had left, but the memory of their presence on the island was preserved in the sagas. And one day, some 300 years later, the Scandinavians would return. But that is the story for another day and another episode. But don't worry, we will cover the return to Greenland in a future episode. It'll be a while though, since that will only happen in the early 18th century. Next time, we'll have a look at the Hanseatic League. This German trading alliance has already popped up a few times in our narrative, and hopefully you're already aware that the League was an important player in the medieval world of finance and politics in Northern Europe. 
it's high time to go into a little more detail about how the League established itself in Scandinavia and what the consequences were. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, why not spread the word wherever you congregate with others who are also into Scandinavian history? Also, please consider leaving a stellar review, or at least five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you can rate podcasts nowadays. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to support the show. Another good way to support the show is to purchase some Scandinavian history-themed merch in the Scandinavian History Podcast webshop. I especially recommend something from the Odin's Lifehack collection. It's a line of merch with quotes from Havamal accredited to the King of the Gods. You can get t-shirts, mugs, tote bags, and many other items with nuggets of Scandinavian wisdom, such as wake up early if you want another man's land or life, only fools hope to live forever by avoiding enemies, or speak useful words or be silent. Links to these amazing products and more can be found on the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page or on Twitter. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Like and follow the page if you want to shop or if you just crave more content, at least vaguely related to Scandinavian history. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry messages about things I've said or not said on the show. If you prefer Twitter, then you can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.